Hi, listeners. Welcome to the Grief Out Loud podcast produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children. I'm Janita Cristofero and wanted to give you just a little heads up as you listen to this episode, you'll be hearing references to our old name, which was Dear Ducky. So just so you don't get too confused, you're listening to the right podcast and we look forward to bringing you even more great content under the Grief Out Loud name. Thanks for joining us. Gone is the darkness, for I am light. Gone are the deceptions, for I have no shadow. Gone are the absences, for I am here and I am there. Gone is the fear, for I am the warm sunshine on your cheek. I am the gentle breeze in your hair. I am the silent music that you hear. Gone are the chains of shame and sorrow, for I am timeless, unfettered, and present. Gone is the recluse, selfish and scheming, for I am in your tears and your laughter. In the rainbow and the evening sky, I whisper, Ma, I'm the tinkling of the chimes. I'm the butterfly that alights on a flower. I'm loving duty at our teacher's side. I am peace within peace. I am here and I am there. I am everywhere. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dear Dougie podcast produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children. I'm Jana DeCristofero, and thank you for tuning in today. This podcast is meant to open up the often avoided conversation about grief. While we all experience loss during our lives, when it occurs, most of us don't know what to do, how to feel, or how to talk about it. So whether you're grieving a loss or wanting to support someone who is, we hope these podcast conversations lead to a better understanding of grief and also provide ideas and inspiration for how you can show up for yourself and also for those you care about. This episode is part two in a three-part series about grieving when someone dies of an overdose. In part one, I spoke with Jessica about the death of her brother, Robert. Today, I'm talking with Samina, whose older son, Ayaz, died of a heroin overdose in 2009. Samina, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. While overdose deaths, whether they are from addiction, prescription drug interactions, accidental, purposeful, or somewhere in between, are on the rise, the unanswered and unanswerable questions can be limitless. We're hopeful that this three-part series will provide information, acknowledgement, and a sense of virtual community in this grief that can so often be isolating and difficult to comprehend, never mind to talk about. As we heard in part one of this series, it can be particularly difficult after someone dies of an overdose to not let their life be defined by how they died. The overdose and possible challenges with addiction can overshadow who that person was and the relationships they had in the world. Samina, has that been part of your experience? Yes, it has. The fact that he died so young and the fact that it was an overdose and all the and the time leading up to that final moment when he did pass was fraught with a lot of um, a lot of anger, frustration, hope, because addiction is a terrible disease. And I think I one time said to Ayaz, "You know, I wish that you had cancer because then we would know what to do." Um, and we would be able to go to, you know, the specialists and get get you cured. But this is in your hands. So, yes, I mean, an overdose, you know, when you tell people that 
yes, he passed away from an overdose. There's so much judgment. And maybe there isn't, but I know that before this happened to me, I was judgmental mm. about other people. I used to work in a hospital, and every time I'd get, you know, I'd be working with a patient, and I would read his chart, and it was another OD, and go, okay, here we go again, and now it's my own son. So you could only imagine what other yeah. people were thinking mm -hmm. based on the thoughts you would have. Absolutely. What stands out to you when you look back on the struggles that Ayaz had with addiction? What stands out is his um, inability to, and he told me this, he said, I think about it all the time. And even when he was clean, even when he wasn't using, he said he was always thinking about it. It was constant 24-7 that he was either remembering how it felt or how, when am I going to get my next next high. So it was all-encompassing for him. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And even though he was so smart, even though he was still, you know, making A's in school, it really was very pervasive. It completely overtook his brain. And I really feel that heroin takes your soul. He was just a kind, gentle, sweet boy. He never, ever hurt anybody but himself. And he had like this amazing laugh. He would just decide that something was funny and he would start to laugh. His whole body would be shaking, his shoulders would be shaking, and whoever was in the room would, would start to laugh just watching him laugh. Mm. So there was this, you know, there was, he was so talented and gifted and kind and gentle, and, and he went down this path. And, you know, now during election season, you keep hearing, you know, finally in 2016, people are talking about the rampant use of opiate prescriptions by doctors, and that's our story. He was a musician, he was a pianist, and he would be playing the piano six to eight hours a day, and that repetitive stress uh, caused him to have a lot of pain, and so the doctor put him on Vicodin. And sometimes he would misuse his Vicodin, and he'd go out on the street, and a Vicodin was $10, and heroin, heroin was cheaper. And you know, once you, put heroin in your body, I feel like you're just... It takes its yeah, own path. It takes its point. own path. Does it seem accurate to say that he died of his addiction? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, he, he didn't want to. It took him forever to admit that he was an addict because when he had his first overdose, he was in the hospital for about nine or 10 weeks. And this was in Canada. He was on so many opiates and they had to do dressing changes on him every day, twice a day, and they would put him on propofol, which is what Michael Jackson died from. It, it's an anesthetic. And even though he was on all this stuff, all these opiates, fentanyl patches, he kept saying, I'm not addicted. You know, I'll be fine. The reality of it finally hit him. After we moved, you know, brought him back to Portland, he still needed the opiates for the pain. Um, but we started going to AA meetings and um, NA meetings. And, you know, when they stand up and they say, I'm so-and-so, I'm an addict, it took him a while to be able to say that. And then I think he said it before he actually believed it. He, like, worked himself into right. that. Right. And then um, eventually he got on Suboxone. And so I remember, you know, going into my adult son's room every morning, and standing there, you know, giving him the Suboxone and waiting for him to swallow it before I would leave. It felt awful. 
Um, you know? Like having to treat him like a child yeah. again. Yeah, it felt awful, but you do what you have to do. And, you know, one time we found syringes in the house, and I was so angry with him, and I said, you know, things that I should have never said to him. And I just remember his face being looking so disappointed in himself. Yeah, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the toll it took on you as his mother. The whole Why? family, it changed our lives. And, you know, we couldn't leave him at home alone because I had to go into work. My husband, Will, had to go into work. And we were so afraid of coming home and finding him dead. I hate to say the word, but um, we were always afraid of that. How has how he died influenced the grief that you've experienced? My grief had a lot of anger in it initially, and I was just so angry with him for, for doing what he did because he knew what the consequences would be. And, you know, in rehab, they kept telling him that the consequence, there, there are two, three consequences. One is you die, you go to jail, or you get better. Those are the three, you know, ways that you can, or, or you know, you, you recover. And, um, and he chose to die. And I was just so angry with him. But I also realized that he didn't want to die. So when you say he chose to die, but you know he didn't want to die, what do you mean by that? He was taking a risk every single time that he shot up. Mm. He was taking a risk. And he was a musician. He was a jazz musician. And he'd read about all these jazz greats who were on heroin and they then came out of their addiction. They cured themselves. But there was also, you know, people watching them. Things started going south. They would call 911 and get help. Well, Ayaz always shot up by himself. So he didn't have that sort no. of safety measure in no. place. Although the day that he died, um, he'd come back from rehab and he didn't live, he, he, he came back home. But then my sister-in-law and brother-in-law, they live in an ashram. And Ayaz used to live in the ashram. And he wanted to go back to the ashram. And so I said, okay, and so what are your plans for um, Friday night? Because we brought him home Thursday. He spent Thursday night with us. And then Friday, he went into work and then he drove to the ashram. And he said he had to go to a youth meeting, and the youth meeting would be over at 9. So the plan was that he would call me at 9.30. So when he didn't call me at 9.30, I called him several times, and he didn't pick up. So I called my sister-in-law. She told me, she assured me that he was fine. She had just seen him. He was playing the piano in the big living room. She would let him know that I called. How did that sit with you? What do you remember feeling in that moment after talking to her? Not good. Not right. And I should have trusted my gut. But when I'd gone to pick him up from rehab, we sat with this counselor. And one of the things he told me is that, Mom, you have to trust me. I'm an adult. These are the things that I will be doing to make, you know, to help myself. So I need space. So you had that in your mind. Right. And then you had your gut instinct saying something is not yeah. right. And so had I pushed harder... Had I just left everything and gone to the ashram, maybe we could have saved him. But I also know that maybe we would have saved him that night. I don't know if I could have saved him the following week or the following month or the following year. That's interesting as you're talking. You mentioned at the beginning that you had said to him at one point, like, I wish you had a, an, a medical illness. Yeah. So we would know what to do. 
and as you're talking, it seems like you were almost in the role of the doctor yeah. to like step in and try to keep him yeah. safe. And I also knew that I really, I couldn't. And so that anger that you initially felt, tremendous anger at him, how has that changed over the years, if at all? I think really believing that this was a disease and illness, I wish that he'd never, it was a something that he'd brought on himself, an illness that he'd brought on himself. Um, but there were so many other circumstances within the family that perhaps led him in that path. And then there's the question of the addiction gene, which I never understood because when I was young, I thought it would be so cool to smoke cigarettes. So I bought myself a pack of cigarettes and I got sick. I, I can't drink, I get sick. I drink a bit of wine, I go to sleep and I get a headache. So I never understood addiction. Mm -hmm. I was so personally yeah. removed from your own right. experience. Right, And the only thing I can relate it to is eating, because I love to eat. Um, and I used to um, just eat everything. And then I went to a nutritionist, and I stopped eating sugar. It took, took me a while, but once I stopped the sugar, it completely changed my eating. Mm. So I realized, oh my gosh, that was an addiction. So that was the one way you yeah. could connect with yeah. that. Yeah. How has that experience and, and Ayaz's death affected how you talk to other people about substances, how you see maybe other people in your family um, using alcohol? I talk to them about the gene, that, you know, if you have the gene, you don't have much control over your path. And so it's really important to be careful from the get-go. You know, Liam being a young man, Ayaz's younger brother, and then going off to college, we were really, really worried and had many, many conversations about drinking and drugs with him. Um, and I wish that I'd, if I knew what I, if I knew then when Ayaz was going to college, what I know now, I think I would have had many, many more conversations with him, mm -hmm. you know, starting even earlier, but I didn't know. So the would have, could have, should haves were very, you know, present in the beginning so there was the anger at him, then the, you know, the self-condemnation. I would have, I could have, I should have done these things, and I didn't. So I felt a lot of guilt, and I still feel guilt. What's been helpful for you in your grief with dealing with the guilt, the self-condemnation? The peer support. Coming here to the Dougie Center was huge. Even though ours was a mixed group, and sometimes it would get a little frustrating. And by mixed, you mean people who had had partners die? Or, or ex-partners die, mm. right? So there would be a lot of talking about their children and, and how difficult their kids were. And I, th I think one time I said, but you're so lucky that you have a child who's alive and you can do something about it now. I think that being at the Dougie Center was a huge help. And then finding other families who'd also lost their kids to heroin. And you've started a, or I don't know if you started it, or there's another, like a subgroup of Compassionate Friends for those of you out there listening as a national organization of support group meetings, particularly for parents and caregivers who have had children die. And, and you're part of a subgroup of that. I am, and I really wasn't instrumental in starting it. It was two other people, one who actually came to the Dougie Center and somebody that she knew, they got together and they did a bulk of the work. 
It makes me think about how important it can be, if possible, to find those connections with other people who have mm-hmm. had a similar type Absolutely. of death. And I'm wondering, what, what are some of the things that you've heard from, not for the people in your community, but just, you know, general public of how people respond to Ayaz's death and how he died? Like, what are some of the maybe not so helpful ways people have responded? Oh, <laughs> <Not> many. <laughs> how much time do we have? Uh, would be that kind of question. Yeah. <laughs> I think the the one that really bothered me was like a year later, my cousin saying, get over it. You don't ever get over a child's death. That is just not supposed to happen. I was reading in New Yorker magazine about how every child that you are pregnant with leave, you know, part of the DNA inside you. And then your immunity is actually like helped by the DNA of all the children that, you know, that you've given birth to. I mean, the loss of a child feels like a part of your inside being wrenched out, literally being cut out, mm. and it hurts. Like a physical wound. It is a physical wound. And now, you know, seven years later, and I'm being able to talk about this and not break down, but again, I never know when the tears will come. It might come tonight. It might come a month from now. So to hear from someone a year yeah. after he died to say, it's time for you to get over it. Yeah. Not helpful. Yeah. No. Were there other things that you've run into from people or interactions that are particularly challenging? I think the hardest interaction for me and I, is you know, when people ask me, how many children do you have? And for people I'm just meeting, I'll usually say, I have two children, but actually I have three. And then I like, say to Ayaz in my head, I know... <laughs> <laughs> but I, I can't write. People don't know how to react to that. That yeah, I have three children. Uh, two of them live in L.A. and one's in heaven. Is that what I say? No. Not to people you've just Yeah. And, um, but there are people that I've gotten you know, closer to, and I'll tell them. And what happens 90% of the time is that that person will tell me about a relative or his or her own experience with addiction. How do you experience that? Is it like, I, oh, you've just taken the story away from me? Or oh, no, no, a... no, no. I feel like she gets it. Mm. And I find that when I do tell someone that I actually had three children, I lost one, and they'll ask, how long ago? And I'll say seven years ago. And, you know, often the question is, how? How old was he? And so I don't mince with my words anymore. Before I would, you know, just leave it at that and not say anymore. But now I say he died from a heroin overdose. You know, in the hope that maybe if more of us say it, maybe the judgment will lift and people will understand that this is a disease. Do you have a sense, Samina, of how your worldview, your background, has um, been a part of your grief? Well, I've always practiced spirituality. And um, I'm a practicing Sufi. So I believe that we hear, well, one of the things that Ayaz would always tell me, that, Mom, there is no time. Present, past, and future is actually all one. It's what you make of it. And I would just look at him and roll my eyes, like, what are you talking (laughs) about? And he was very philosophical, and he would, like, talk to me about things that I didn't understand. From a very young age, From a very young age. You know, when he was 14, he wrote this letter after his grandfather passed away that really, I mean, surprises me at how 
he knew that this is only our time on earth is just very precious and it's very short so i feel that you know he's de- he's he's in a better place i feel that i'm always looking for little gifts from him whether it's you know the sun on my cheek when i'm driving or a butterfly floating by um those are gifts and i i talk with him like do you think i should do this do you think i should make a right or a left <laughs> you know <laughs> Yeah. I asked for GPS. Yeah. <laughs> Did you, do you get an answer? Is he helpful with directions? Yeah. I wonder about reading a, a small part of that okay. letter that Ayaz wrote after his grandfather died. He says, physical things occur over spans of time. They are not timeless. But in the prodigious scheme of the spirit, Dada, which is grandfather, is here with us all the time and forever. It is this true spirit that is timeless. Dada is with us even more so now than before. We may be unable to talk with him on the telephone or eat lunch with him, but our greatest fortune is that we get to live through him. He is within all of us. We must remember this and seek the spirit and roam in this essence in every aspect of life. We must force ourselves to go beyond the illusionary physical life that human beings are preoccupied with. and find the true peace and divinity that dada has so beautifully portrayed for us it is now our duty and also our therapy to do this to channel the positive living energy of this human being that we love forever and not and allow it to resonate through us and through our everyday lives wow he was 14 years old when he re- wrote that as you read it and i've heard this a few times now it strikes me almost as if he was teaching you and your family yeah about how to grieve yeah maybe in anticipation of him not being there yeah so he had some idea that he was going to go early that he knew that we would need some kind of something to ground us i don't know and i don't think he necessarily thought about you know him leaving us early but i know i just, i'm amazed every single time i read this i'm amazed that how did he know how did he know this at 14 years mm-hmm. of age or maybe this was just so apparent to him and it was you don't know this <laughs> really <laughs> let me point out what's obvious to me to the rest of you right yeah mm-hmm. i think that's how it was mm-hmm. well samina is there anything else that you would share with our listeners maybe who are in a similar situation cry crying helped me a lot every time i cried i felt like i could take another step forward you know everybody grieves differently i i just found that um i work with children and that really helped me just being able to get out of bed every day and get into work mode so for you you found that to be really yeah. helpful and also you know the the peer support really really helped So in our show notes I'll link to Compassionate Friends which is that national organization we mentioned with support groups all around the country if you are also a grieving parent or grandparent or caregiver and I just want to say thank you so much Samina for being here today you're so welcome and thank you for the opportunity and thanks to everyone out there for listening in today if you'd like to hear our past episodes or learn more about the Dougie Center you can find us at dougy.org You can also find our podcast in iTunes where you can uh, give us a rating or a review which helps others find our podcast as well. Uh, we hope you'll join us next time. 
Thanks for listening.